Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us and letting us be part of your day. Here's what we're going to be talking about today. Dr. Dan Kovich, who is Director of Science and Technology for the National Pork Producers Council, will be joining us. We're going to talk more about gene editing in livestock production. Uh, The National Pork Producers Council and others in agriculture would like to see oversight of this technology be done by USDA and not FDA. Well, FDA is pushing back on that. They don't want to give that oversight up, and we'll talk about that ongoing uh, battle and uh, the push to get it moved to USDA with Dr. Dan Kovich with NPPC on today's program. Also today, we'll have the uh, latest results of the Purdue CME Ag Economy Barometer. Purdue Ag Economist Michael Langemeyer will be joining us to go over the results and uh, A little bit of a change in June from what we saw in May. We'll go over that. And also today we are going to talk um, about hemp production. Uh, There's growing interest in growing hemp. And we'll try to answer some of the questions. And there are a lot of questions around it. Uh, We'll talk with Leo Troy with uh, Prairie Prairie Ag Hemp Consulting. And um, they're going to have a meeting coming up in eastern Iowa on this very topic. And we want to just kind of get into some of the questions that are being asked uh, by many who are looking into it. Uh, just what do they need to know? What are the regulations involved? Different laws in different states. What about the marketing of hemp? So many different questions. We will get into that a little bit later on with Leo Troy. But right now we're going to start things off talking it over with Todd Neely with DTN. Todd, thanks for joining us. And while the... That uh, proposal by EPA for the RVO levels in 2020, certainly that proposal has the biofuels industry very concerned, very upset, and speaking out uh, uh, to the administration saying, hey, what about your support for biofuels? What's happening here? Yeah, well, hi, Mike. Yeah, you know, it was interesting. I know a lot's been made of the timing of it, too. Um, You know, the proposal came out the day after the 4th of July, uh, and there wasn't a ton of media attention on it. We'd kind of been tracking it throughout the week, knowing it was on the way. Um, but, yeah, this proposal basically um, it basically flatlines biodiesel. Uh, you know, we expected the corn ethanol number to stay the same, which it does. There's an implied volume of 15 billion gallons, which uh, corn ethanol has seen for many years, actually. Um, but this particular proposal, it really... Um, it really only leaves a little bit of room for cellulosic ethanol growth. Um, and as you know, cellulosic ethanol is kind of in the same category with biodiesel in the advanced category. Um, and so basically we're seeing biodiesel being left pretty much where it's at, which is about 2.43 billion gallons, uh, even on into 2021. Um, you know, it's really, it's really interesting because the industry has been saying for a number of years now that it's capable of producing more uh, biodiesel, um, but it's not going to get help from the RFS at this point. And um, I suspect as well we're going to continue to hear about the, the small refinery waivers. Uh, there's nothing in this proposal at all that even addresses that. Um, and so we're still at square one, and we've been at square one on a lot of these issues for um, several proposals coming from the EPA on this. 
Yeah, no reallocation of lost gallons due to the exemptions, and really right. no indication whether there's going to be a change in policy of how they're going to grant those uh, exemptions moving forward. And for the biodiesel folks, uh, and we talked yesterday with Senator Grassley, there's, they're still waiting to, for something to happen on the tax extenders package. They need that uh, biodiesel tax credit. Yeah, they do. You know, it, it expired. It's been a while now, and uh, it's really amazing when you look at the situation the industry's in. You know, that tax credit uh, played a large role in getting uh, biodiesel off the ground. And since day one, I mean, it's been an up and down uh, roller coaster with the tax credit. You know, it's gone on and off again many times. And still, we're seeing an industry that's just kind of sitting there poised, you know, to really take off growth-wise. Um, and so it's it's uh, it's kind of interesting because you got the RFS, and it's supposed to promote growth in biofuels. And uh, here you have an industry willing to do it and ready to do it, and we're still waiting on federal policy to sort itself out. And especially, you know, the president gives a speech yesterday talking about uh, his administration's record on environmental yeah. issues. And, there, and there's so much talk about environmental issues. Well, here we have a domestic industry that uh, ha- produces a product good for the environment and yet uh, facing all these headwinds to move forward with it. Yeah, it's interesting because the president mentioned nothing about that. And, uh you know, I don't know that EPA looks at biofuels the same way as it does other environmental uh, concerns that, it, that it, it's in charge of. Um, I think, you know, it, it was basically given uh, given the, the, the duties to, to uh, implement the RFS, you know, years ago, over a decade ago. Um, and sometimes you, you kind of wonder if that's not the place for the RFS. You know, maybe, you know, people have discussed um, you know, maybe the USDA implementing the program. And so I I, uh, I think it's, it's interesting because you're right. Um, bio, biofuels has a pretty decent record when it comes to the environment. I know many environmental groups don't agree, but um, the data shows that uh, it cuts emissions, and there's just so many different benefits that, that come from biofuels. And it really, uh, to leave that aspect out of what EPA does, I thought was really curious. Meanwhile, we'll switch to trade real quick before we wrap it up. Um, there was some thought that maybe the 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 implementing bill for USMCA would be submitted to Congress this week to get kind of the clock started, but it doesn't look like that's going to happen, and uh, more talks are scheduled this week. Yeah, you know, and I think as we continue to go on, um, you know, this we got to get we got to at least get the USMCA off and rolling. I mean, this is. Um, this is an agreement that's that's really been most for the most part ready to go. Outside of, uh, you know, we had some issues with aluminum tariffs and so on that that has been cleared up. Um, so yeah, I I don't know <clears throat> I don't know what the politics on this are honestly because it really does uh, really benefits people across the aisle and it benefits people across the country. And so here we are sitting and waiting. Yep, it, uh, as I said, they're going to have meetings on it this week. Uh... Democrats are wanting to uh, kind of hold off on this. They want some issues addressed, and uh, I think the administration certainly doesn't want to uh, submit it until they feel pretty good about its chances. And and and, and they're working yeah. with uh, Nancy Pelosi to try to get that, you know, to, for the smoothest path possible on this. It's going to be bumpy at best. Right. Yeah, and I think you know we've kind of seen that along the way that it, nothing seems to go all that smoothly on these trade agreements, at least in this. Uh, you know, under the Trump administration, you know, we've had a lot of a lot of ups and downs with trade, and I guess this is just another one of those. We just, uh, 
I think at some point, though, I think, you know, cooler heads are going to prevail. I think this USMCA will get done. It's just that it seems to be caught up in procedure and, and, and all that. Yeah, will it be before or after the August recess? That remains to be seen as well. All right, Todd, always good to talk Absolutely. with you. Thank you very much. All right, thank you so much, Mike. Take care. DTN reporter Todd Neely. Up next, the battle over gene editing in livestock production, and should it be uh, regulated by FDA or should the oversight be with USDA, the National Pork Producers National Pork Producers Council would like to see it with USDA, but FDA is pushing back on that. We're going to talk with Dr. Dan Kovich with the National Pork Producers Council about that next here on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. The Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council present the story of Cynthia and Ed. My mother was always very active and independent, and she was familiar with her neighborhood. But one day, out of the blue, she stopped at the stop sign for much longer than usual. And uh, she didn't know whether she should go forward or, or turn or just stay at the stop sign. She wasn't even really sure where she was at. She was very concerned. It was very unsettling for her. It's important for you to talk to someone about it, to bring the family in on it. I felt so much better after my son told me, Mom, I don't want you to worry or be afraid. I'll be there for you, and we'll figure it out. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. Visit alz.org slash stories to learn more. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. Recently on Adams on Agriculture. That is exactly uh, the question that we're all going to have to evaluate. And frankly, I don't think we're going to be able to evaluate that immediately. For some of the substantive issues that the U.S. is pushing China on, it's not just a matter of having the government say it's going to do something. It's actually seeing the implementation and then ensuring that what you think you got in the negotiation is what's actually implemented. So we'll all do an initial assessment once a deal is reached, and, and probably we'll do some Monday morning quarterbacking to say they should have gotten more in this area or, or that one is nice but doesn't go as uh, – it doesn't do exactly what I needed it to do. But really it will be in the intervening six months, a year after it's implemented, that we'll be able to begin to assess whether it's made genuine structural changes. All right, Aaron, as always, thanks for your perspective. Good to talk with you again. Same here, Mike. Have a good day. Take care. Aaron Ennis, Senior Vice President of the U.S.-China Business Councils. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. 
You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. We have talked before about the potential benefits of gene editing in livestock production, but there is a a battle going on about oversight of that technology. Should it be with FDA where it's at, or should it be moved to USDA, like many in the livestock industry, like the National Pork Producers Council would like to see? FDA pushing back, defending its turf in this, saying that uh, they are the agency that's uh, best equipped to handle this. Let's talk about it with Dr. Dan Kovich, who is Director of Science and Technology for the National Pork Producers Council. Dan, thanks for joining us again. Um, FDA is uh, pushing back and saying, we don't want to give this up. We're, we're qualified for this, for this task. In fact, their director of the Center for Veterinary Medicine at FDA said, that the agency has the right framework and expertise after decades of reviewing biotech applications and building teams that are steeped in the science. Do you uh, disagree with that? And why are you? Why do you feel it's best to have the oversight with USDA? Sure. Well, certainly, um, it's nice to see the FDA publicly talking about this issue. Um, I, I would like to just point out a few things. Um, you know, first of all. I believe the FDA does have a good track record when it comes to approving biomedical applications of this technology uh, using uh, either uh, genetically modified or gene-edited animals to produce pharmaceuticals, uh, things for organ transplants, etc. I think they understand that space, that industry, and, and can work there. Uh, where I don't think they have a good track record is looking at agricultural applications of this technology. You know, if we look over the past, you know, 40 plus years, we've been talking about uh, gene, genetic uh, modification technology. We've only seen one animal come out that is a, you know, a salmon that is yet to hit grocery store shelves after 20-plus years of review. Um, and, I, again, I think that speaks to the, the different space, the, the different markets for these types of products, and the fact that FDA doesn't necessarily have a good understanding of how uh, animals' genes move through herds, flocks, the marketplace, and, and how what they're doing is going to impact that. Now, there's also some question, without getting too deep into the weeds here on on technicalities about how these things work but uh is it as simple as just fda uh giving over the oversight to usda there's something about how that would have to be done and there's some contention over whether that can be done uh uh, or not fda saying that that's not the intent of congress uh tell us how that would work Sure, sure. Well, certainly I don't think Congress had any intention of regulating gene editing back when the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act was passed. So, in a sense, as these new technologies come on board, it's always going to be a little bit of a case of trying to fit a round peg into a square hole in making that law fit. Um, The other thing I do want to say here is that, you know, there can definitely be a role for both agencies as we move forward here. Um, You know, I think it boils down to who is actually providing oversight for the descendants of gene-edited animals 
on farms and ranches because what the FDA is saying right now is that in a, is that they're going to regulate the altered genome as a drug. They then go on to say that they're not going to regulate the animal as a drug, but they have yet to convince me scientists working in this field, anyone with an interest in what the functional difference between the animal and its genome, which is obviously in every cell in its body, is. There are other approaches that the FDA can take to approve the actual edit. Um, and if they do have, as they claim, uh, groups of people with expertise in the actual process that leads to gene editing, that may be a role for them. What we're concerned about is what is actually getting approved. Is it the edit or this altered genome, and how does that affect how the descendants of these animals are going to be regulated on farms and ranches? And that is where we, that's where we feel that post-market, or excuse me, that post-approval piece, that the USDA has the expertise, and more importantly, the existing authority under the Animal Health Protection Act to regulate the descendants of gene-edited animals. Now, FDA is saying they're taking steps to update their guidelines and so that they could um, better handle this within their goal, they say, of protecting public health and safety. So do you, th- do you think those, uh, those steps to update their guidelines could speed up the process if it stays with FDA? Potentially, sure. And, I mean, we certainly want to make sure that, that this is, you know, that, that gene edits are safe, both to the animal and to consumers, that it doesn't impact the, the products that the animals produce in a harmful way. Um, and, and, and in reality, I, again, our issue, and, and as you mentioned, this gets complicated very quickly, but it's not necessarily with the steps that the FDA is saying they're going to take to approve an edit. Again, it's what happens it's what is it that they're approving and what happens after that. Because what we really, really, at the end of the day, feel very strongly about is that we can't, in a sense, make our livestock and poultry, herds and flocks across the United States, living, breathing animal drugs. And if gene editing were to be widely adopted and they continue to regulate the animal's DNA as a drug versus the actual things that are used to edit the founder animal, it's just going to open us up to a world of potential complications, trade barriers. I mean, in a sense, it would mean that every, every uh, straw of semen or embryo sold across the animal breeding industry could be considered a drug. We're talking with Dr. Dan Kovich, who is Director of Science and Technology for the National Pork Producers Council. So, Dan, how does this get resolved? If FDA does not want to give up this oversight authority... How does this come about? How, how does a change come about? Well, again, I mean, we are very confident that this does not require any change to existing law or even the coordinated framework, which is the document that tells agencies how they need to work together to regulate this. The FDA does have other approaches they can take to approve the actual edit itself and to share authority when it comes to monitoring the populations, the descendants of animals on farms, with the USDA. So really what it takes right now is a willingness for the FDA to come back to the table, uh, to listen to concerns that are being raised, and again, not just by us, by virtually every livestock organization, 
the science community, the land-grant universities, uh, state departments of agriculture, pretty much unanimous concern across the board with the ramifications of this current approach. So in reality, that's what it's going to take. The FDA admitting that there may be some valid concerns with what they proposed, coming back to the table and being willing to talk with stakeholders. Yeah, it doesn't sound like in their public comments that they're to that point, though. No, and, and we are, you know, working aggressively to hopefully, again, spread that message and get them to come back to the table, talking with the administration, uh, with our friends on the Hill, uh, to, again, try and start a really needed dialogue here to take a look at this. It's, it's too important of a technology to, to throw away on a regulatory framework that's just not going to let it be used. Dan, before I let you go, again, um, we're dealing, uh, you know, the world's looking at this African swine fever situation. We're trying to do everything we can in the U.S. to keep it out. Is gene editing uh, the answer to that situation? When you have a disease with no vaccine, can we use gene editing uh, to have hogs that would be, uh, say, resistant to African swine fever? Well, I, I don't want to spread false hope up there. We need to continue doing everything that we're currently doing to prevent ASF coming in because that's going to be many years in the future. I will say, however, that there are a lot of people looking at that worldwide as a potential solution. So it's years away, but actively being looked at. The last thing we want is, you know, because of a broken regulatory system here, to have the rest of the world being able to use that technology well, we're stuck. Um, as you said, there's no vaccine without a defense. So a lot of promise in that area. It's years to come. We have to remain vigilant, excuse me, vigilant. but uh, definitely some exciting work being done there. Dan, as always, good to talk with you. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Have a good day. All right. Dr. Dan Kovich, who is Director of Science and Technology for the National Pork Producers Council. Coming up next, we'll talk with Purdue Ag Economist Michael Langemeyer. We have uh, the June results from the Purdue CME Group Ag Economy Barometer. And there have been some changes in the numbers since uh, the May uh, report came out. We'll see where there is some hope and some optimism. And we'll get break that down with Michael Langemeyer coming up next. And then later in the program, we're going to try to answer some questions you may have if you're thinking about Growing Hemp, that's coming up on today's show as well, right here on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Recently on Adams on Agriculture. You know, very unlikely doesn't mean not. Doesn't mean it's not going to happen. So uh, I'd say if there's a you know, a swim chance in there, or a glimmer of hope that we can grab onto and uh, hopefully push them a little harder. And, you know, it's going to take help, though. we gotta, we got to have a lot of folks uh, pushing this thing and, you know, making sure that they want to they wanna move this now and, and not wait for that after that August recess. So, you know, like I said, hopefully we can get folks motivated to, to pass USMCA. And we're going to be working hard as NCGA and myself and others to uh, make sure we're out there doing the job and, and pushing them. But um, it's it's going to take a lot more effort than that, too, to, to, to get these guys to move off a, off a center on this one. Hopefully some positives will be coming soon. Thank you very much for the update. Appreciate it. Hey, glad to be on this morning. Thanks a lot. Take care, Kevin. Kevin Ross, president-elect of the National Corn Growers Association. 
For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. Time now for a market check here on Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network. We've got a defensive stance in the grain and oil seed sector on this Tuesday trading session. Wheat, corn, soybeans, all backpedaling. USDA is scheduled to release its monthly corn and soybean production estimates Thursday, 11 Central Time. Average trade guess on corn yields nationwide, 164.9 bushels per acre. That'd be down from 166 in June. We are down in corn futures. New crop December down nine and a quarter, 434 and a half. November soybeans an hour into the trading day down five and three quarters at 892 and a quarter. In Monday afternoon's crop progress numbers, corn was rated 57% in good to excellent condition. Soybeans rated 53% good to excellent. Those numbers historically poor. December corn was firm on Monday, but intraday gains stalled at the 20-day moving average resistance level at 448.5. The new crop November soybean contract testing support at 897 and three quarters. A bearish target lies at 881 and three quarters. And again, November at 892, down five and three quarters. In the wheats, Chicago September down 11 and a quarter, 499 and three quarters. Kansas City wheat, eight to nine cents lower, six to seven lower in Minneapolis spring wheat. Livestock at the Merck and live cattle, August contract, 20 cents higher at 106.35. Feeder cattle, August, $1.10 higher at 139.97. Lean hog futures, the August contract, $1.67 higher, 77.72. On Wall Street, the Dow is down 99 points. You're listening to Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network. Thousands of people contact InventHelp monthly about their invention or new product. Do you think companies would be interested in your idea? Do you want to try to get a patent? Call InventHelp now. Best of all, the call and information are free. InventHelp keeps your idea confidential, explaining every step of the invention process. We create professional materials and submit them to companies who are looking for new ideas in your category. We have more than 9,000 companies who have agreed to review new ideas in confidence. If a company shows interest in manufacturing, manufacturing your invention, we can negotiate on your behalf. We have helped over 10,000 clients receive patents. We offer 3D modeling and animation, prototyping services, and we use state-of-the-art technology to present client ideas to additional companies. Join people just like you who made the call to InventHelp. You have nothing to lose. The call and the information are free. Call 1-800-213-4556. That's 1-800-213-4556. Again, 1-800-213-4556. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. Well, as we look at the June readings, the June results of the Purdue CME Group Ag Economy Barometer, we see that it is higher from June than it was in May. Let's talk about it with Purdue Ag Economist Michael Langemeyer. Michael, thanks for joining us. Uh, 25 points higher in June than in May, right? Yes, a very large spike up, up in the index in, in June compared to May. And, and I, think, I think we can explain this in, 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 uh, two or, with two or three uh, different comments. 
Uh, the first one is when you look at mid-May compared to mid-June, that's when the two surveys were done, uh, certainly corn and soybean prices, particularly the futures prices nearby, and, and the fall futures prices were considerably higher uh, when the mid-June survey was taken than the mid-May survey. Also, in mid-May, we were having all these these planting issues where we, could, we were having trouble getting the crop in the ground. There were still some issues, of course, in mid-June, but the, but, but, but uh, but uh, people had a little better idea of what they were going to get planted, um, and so that also he- that also helped uh, 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 create the, the large increase in the in the index. Uh, the other thing is the in the announcement of the market facilitation program payments occurred in late May, uh, which was after the the, the mid May survey, and so that certainly helped uh, sediment too. Yeah, timing is everything. Uh, we're still waiting to see uh, how this is going to work out with the market facilitation payments. I've not seen those start yet. Also, there's the disaster package that was passed by Congress and signed by the president. USDA is still looking at how it's going to implement that. So when those things finally do start happening, I mean, as you mentioned, just the announcement of them uh, raised sentiments. So when those checks are actually issued, that will influence uh, future barometer uh, readings, right? Yes, I think that would definitely be positive. And, of course, it depends on the size of the market facilitation uh, payments. Uh, You know, if they're relatively small, that'll probably have a depressing effect. But if they're similar to last year uh, in terms of of magnitude, uh, then then it'll certainly be positive. Also, of course, when it gets to timing, uh, we look back, there were decisions being made on whether to plant or take prevent plant. Uh, Those decisions impacted this, too. Yes, we did a couple couple questions related to the market facilitation program payments, and uh, corn, we, we asked corn and soybean producers whether these these payments impacted the decision uh, to plant to plant corn and soybeans, and and we not surprisingly uh, we found that it did. Uh, people, uh, producers uh, tended to plant um, additional corn and soybean acres uh, because of the MFP payments, the potential MFP payments, uh, specifically. Yeah. Twenty uh, percent of the corn producers said it was important uh, to, the, to their decision to continue to plant corn. Ten uh, percent of the soybean producers said it was important uh, in their decision to continue to plant soybeans. And so, and so, certainly those payments had an impact on on, on planted acres. Yeah, USDA kept saying they did not want to influence those decisions, but by just uh, announcing that they were going to have uh, another round of payments, there was no way not to influence uh, some of those decisions. Yeah, particularly when the language uh, seems to indicate that you had to plant the crops in order to get the payment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and there was no way it couldn't impact their decisions. We're talking with the Purdue Ag Economist Michael Langemeyer. We're looking at the June results of the Purdue CME Group Ag Economy Barometer. What about uh, how do farmers feel about farmland values? Farmland values, I've, I've certainly when the sediment increases like it did, uh, from from mid mid May to to, to uh, uh, mid June, you expect to see more positive uh, attitude towards farmland values, and so and cer- so certainly those that think that farmland values are going to see some strength in the next year, that percentage went up. Uh, the still the people that say we're going to have negative uh, negative land values in the next year is still higher than those who think we're going to have higher land values. But nevertheless, uh, those those became more even than they were in mid-May. And then also looking out five years, uh, people are more optimistic where land values are heading in the next five years, uh, you know, uh, uh, in mid-June compared to mid-May. And so we always have to remember uh, when we're talking about sediment, there's both kind of a short-term sediment, 
which we call our current condition index, and the future expectations. And in mid-May, quite frankly, uh, the sediment was relatively low for both the current conditions and the future expectations. And so, and so all the things I talked about at the beginning uh, that were positive uh, for, for the mid-June uh, survey or, uh, sediment were important both from a one-year-out standpoint and five-year-out standpoint. You know, we talk a lot about safety nets, but uh, for many, it's those farmland values and where they're at and how they've held during these uh, depressed commodity prices. Uh, farmland values have held pretty well, and uh, that's where much of the hope is, right, and, and, and much oh, of that oh, safety definitely. net. Definitely. I mean, with a lot, of, a lot of producers are seeing some working capital crunch, uh, some weak working capital uh, by, by quite a few growers, and, and one of the things that's really, really helped uh, to to ensure that we can get uh, we can borrow more money if we need to as a strong land values uh, that that's been immensely important uh, you know uh, uh, you know given that the net, the net farm income has been relatively low since 2014. Well, we keep talking about and following these trade talks, especially with China. How do farmers feel about them? Are they optimistic that it's going to turn out in their favor? Yeah, they're optimistic that we're going to see that exports are going to increase the next five years, and so we've been asking that question in, in, in recent surveys. Uh, and they remain optimistic that that's going to be the case, but they're also optimistic that this is going to be resolved in our favor. Uh, that has really held steady. Uh, it, it's been over 50 percent, and in some months it's 70 percent. Uh, feel that that uh, this is going to be resolved in, in our favor, um, uh, you know, rather than being detrimental long term. You know, looking ahead, who knows uh, when you release your next uh, results, whether we'll have anything done with China or not. That may still be going on. In fact, probably a good chance it will be. But I, I would think things like uh, crop conditions, always commodity prices, and maybe if we start seeing those payments uh, coming in that we talked about, that will really influence the next report. Well, definitely one of the things that, that's hanging over our heads right now is, is none of us really know how many prevent plant acres there are. And so just the uncertainty in corn prices is, is going to have a big impact on the sediment. If it looks like corn prices are going to be relatively weak, we'd expect the, the sediment to, to weaken uh, somewhat. If, if corn prices are relatively strong because the prevent plant acres are higher uh, than what the trade uh, thinks are going to be, then, of course, that would, that would, that would improve sediment. And so, and so there's, there's, there's still people out there. There's a group of people out there that are still pretty bearish, on corn, and there's people out there that are pretty bullish on corn, uh, and both are pretty sizable groups, and you can actually make a case for both. Uh, you can make a case that corn prices might be, might be relatively low compared to where they are now uh, if, if this late planted corn does well, uh, and the prevent plant acres are not that high. On the other hand, if prevent plant acres is, is, is quite a bit higher than the trade expects and we have a, a pretty big yield impact, you could make the case for corn over $5. Uh, and so that, that uncertainty in corn prices uh, in particular is really going to have an impact on the, on the volatility of the index over time. Uh, one of the things that we did ask in addition to the MFP payments that I think is very interesting is we asked a question uh, related to uh, prevent plant and specifically related to, to corn producers. And the, the question was, what percentage of your corn acreage do you expect to take a federal crop insurance preventive planting payment on in 2019, and this, of course, was of mid-June, and uh, and a very large percent, in fact, a third, thought that they were going to take prevent plant on at least some of their acres. Let me repeat that: a third uh, thought that they were going to take prevent plant on some of their acres. That was much higher 
uh, than we thought it would be. Now, of course, some of those people are probably going to take prevent plant on just a few acres. Uh, others, it's going to be a, a quite a few acres. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, there's quite a, there, there's this, this, the survey, that survey question indicates that, that prevent plant could be rather large. This increase in optimism, uh, this this jump from uh, May to June, uh, does that is that reflected in a willingness or a confidence in making investments to say in machinery or buildings or things like that? Some of the larger investments. Interestingly enough, there there was an improvement in sediment re- related to land values, but the sediment related to making machinery and equipment purchases budged just a little bit, and so that. That still remains uh, well below what it was even a few months ago. In fact, only 20% of those surveyed indicate that this was a good time uh, to invest in machinery and buildings. That's typically ran closer to 25 to 35% during the history of the survey, and so that's still relatively low. And so, and so even though the, op- the optimism improved, it hasn't improved so much that people are, are thinking about uh, you know, buying uh, a lot of machinery later this year. And even with the improvement last month, Michael, how does that compare to past months uh, uh, in the findings? Uh, where do, you've been doing this, what, since 2015? Where does this rank? Yeah, since late 2015. The, the mid-May uh, index was the lowest it had been since October 2016. And so that kind of puts in perspective uh, this increase in the index. Uh, the index is currently at 126. That's still below uh, the average for the last year. Uh, we've had some, you know, we've had a lot of volatility in the index ever since we we started the trade dispute with China last last June. Uh, the index has been quite volatile, uh, but there's been times since since last June where the index has broke 140, and so that kind of puts in perspective of where we're at today. It, it's it's strong compared to mid-May, but it's still not it's still not that strong uh, compared to where we have been uh, in the last year. Quite a roller coaster, and it looks like uh, that roller coaster ride will probably continue uh, throughout this year, and we'll be looking forward to seeing what uh, next month's uh, report has to say, and we'll talk to you then. Michael, thank you very much. Thank you. Michael Langemeyer, he is Purdue economist, and giving us the results, the latest results of the Purdue CME Group Ag Economy Barometer, again showing uh, an increase of 25 points uh, in June from what we had seen in May. Well, a lot of interest in growing hemp uh, all across the country, but there are a lot of questions too. We're going to try to answer some of those questions next as we'll talk with Leo Troy. He is with Prairie Springs Ag Hemp Consulting. We'll get into some of those questions. Stay with us right here on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. My mom's a breast cancer survivor. The United Breast Cancer Foundation saved her life. Their free breast cancer exam caught the cancer early, and it saved her life. But now the foundation needs your help so they can continue offering free or low-cost breast screening exams, saving more women's lives. Help them by donating your car, whether it's running or not. They'll provide fast, free 24-hour pickup, and you receive a charitable tax deduction, plus the great feeling you'll get knowing your donated car is going to help save more lives. Just call 800-745-3327 to set the wheels in motion. They take cars, trucks, vans, and SUVs, running or not. 
Call 800-745-3327. The United Breast Cancer Foundation needs your help, and your donation could literally save women's lives, helping them catch breast cancer early like they did with my mom. Donate today, You may not realize how important three letters can be. For a patient who needs type A, B, or O blood, these letters can mean life. But there simply aren't enough people giving blood. Every two seconds, someone in the U.S. needs it. But only about 3% of the population donates. Without more donors, hospitals may not have the blood needed to save lives. That's why the American Red Cross needs people to help restore the A's, B's, and O's that are depleting each day. When you make your appointment to donate blood at redcrossblood.org forward slash missing types, you can help give strength to kids, parents, and grandparents who face life and death challenges. From cancer patients to accident survivors, waiting for critical surgeries, your generosity can give someone more life. Don't wait until the letters A, B, and O are missing from hospital shelves. You are the missing type patients need. Visit redcrossblood.org forward slash missing types or call 1-800-RED-CROSS to make your donation appointment today. Most of us like to be out in the sun. That's why sunscreen and other safety measures are key to protecting your skin from aging and cancer. The FDA recommends using a sunscreen with an SPF of 15 or higher. Also, look for broad spectrum on the label. That means both harmful ultraviolet A and B rays are blocked. Remember, SPF plus broad spectrum equal healthy fun in the sun. Visit www.fda.gov sunscreen for more information. A message from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Over the years, you've brought them into your home. You were prescribed opioids after the C-section and after Dad's back injury. They helped when you were in pain, and you held on to them just in case. But did you know holding on to unused opioids puts your family at risk? Trouble with opioids can start at home with unused medicines, such as pills, patches, and syrups. You can remove the risk and protect your family. Find out how at www.fda.gov slash drug disposal. I spend a lot of time in the garage, but even more time in the rain, sleet, and mud. In 95, I helped tow your moving trailer. In 05, I helped you get out of a ditch. Yeah, I know I'm a bit rusty, and sadly in 09, it was sparks from me, your handy chains. 
dragging behind your truck that accidentally started a wildfire. Sparks from dragging chains can start a wildfire. Spark a change, not a wildfire. Visit SmokeyBear.com, brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. Only you can prevent wildfires. You're listening to AOA Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, there's a lot of interest in growing hemp, but there are also a lot of questions. Maybe we can get some answers here. Uh, won't have time to get into everything because there's so many questions. But I want to hit on some of the uh, main points. Joining us now is Leo Troy. He's with Prairie Springs Ag Hemp Consulting. Leo, thank you for joining us. Uh, I, I guess the, the first question would probably sit around, uh, what are the laws for the state in which you live, right? And Because it's different state to state. It sure is. And uh, Iowa signed, um, uh, the governor of Iowa signed legislation on uh, May 13th of this year. Uh, that legislation has to go to the USDA, which will happen at the end of the year, which will open up hemp farming for 2020. Um, and uh, so I have a lot of interest. We're having a meeting in eastern Iowa um, August 8th um, at Jackson County Fairgrounds in the Boyer Hall building from 4 to 6.30 p.m. to uh, discuss some of the uh, legalities, uh, compliance. Uh, We're going to touch a little bit about the agronomy and equipment farmers will need. Uh, and basically, if you can grow beans, you can grow hemp. Um, a lot of the same equipment. Um, uh, we do have uh, contacts in the marketplace. Uh, some of the um, uh, current pricing uh, uh, contracts are 60 cents for grain, uh, conventional grain, and a dollar 24 organic grain contracts. Um, and uh, those uh, prices kind of fluctuate like everything else. Um, but we have a tremendous interest in the Amish and the Mennonites. Um, seems like uh, the Iowa legislation is designed for smaller farms, and it's very appealing to the Mennonites and the Amish um, in getting into hemp production. Leo, what's the biggest uh, needs or requirements a farmer would need starting out in hemp production uh, from an equipment standpoint and from seed and things like that and, and the uh, availability of that of those uh, particular items? Um, you can uh, actually plant. It depends on the intention of the farmer, if it's fiber, if it's, uh, if it's grain, or if it's dried flowers. And uh, there is a dried flower market um, uh, but for the grain, which is probably uh, the biggest and most solid market out there, um, you can you preferred planting is with a, a grain drill, and uh, you can use a bean head to harvest it. Um, you do need uh, open bottom um, uh, storage bins with uh, full air. Um, uh, the grain is uh, really. Um, 
uh, can spoil quickly, so you have to dry it down real quick to 9%. Uh, and a lot of times you have to take it from the hopper back to the truck, back to the hopper. You've got to keep it moving. It can spoil within a 24-hour period, um, so you got it's very uh, crucial that you um, you keep it moving and and dry it down quickly um, uh, so that it doesn't spoil. What about THC compliance? Uh, THC compliance is is a um, a very crucial topic. Uh, most hemp producers that are now currently uh, producing hemp uh, are under the 2014 uh, THC compliance testing, which just tests for um, uh, Delta 9 THC. Uh, now, next year, everybody will have to do total THC compliance testing, which is a, a combination of THC and THCA going to be um, way more difficult uh, to really um, to fall into compliance with uh, a THC. Um, uh, there are some states, uh, Wisconsin being one of them, that have realized this, and they're trying to make variances within their state um, um, to comply uh, and to uh, get it, you know, maintain the um, hemp farming and uh, hemp uh, farming market products, um, so it's going to be difficult here this next year. And you mentioned marketing earlier. Is most of that done on a contract basis? Yes, um, and you know uh, why would you grow something that you didn't uh, have a market for? Uh, you know, markets are underdeveloped, and they will develop uh, here within the next few years. Uh, Wisconsin, uh, being its second year, uh, 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 does have uh, processing is coming into the picture on local levels. Um, so it usually follows. Uh, there's a saying here in Iowa, there was an old movie that Kevin Coster uh, made, uh, The Field of Dreams. Uh, uh, if you build it, they will come. Well, if you plan it, those markets will come and processing will come. But it's important to realize that hemp farming is at its infancy and that uh, a farmer should take baby steps and start off small, um, get your uh, learning curve behind you, uh, and uh, grow with the market. Get information, talk with other people that are, uh, that are growing it, right? Yes, and in Iowa we have to look outside uh, to Minnesota, Wisconsin, um, and see what's working for them. And, uh, you know, here within the next few years, we're going to start gathering data, um, and, you know, we'll have uh, uh, certain things under our belt um, that these other states uh, uh, have now. So um, it's important to start out small and, uh, you know, do the baby steps, and but do the due diligence too. Mm-hmm. Well, Leo, thanks for the information. As I said, a lot of questions about this, and we're going to be trying to uh, get more information out to to our listeners. For those that are interested, I know some aren't, but uh, for those that are, we're trying to provide as much information as we can. Thank you for being with us. Thank you, Mike. Leo Troy with Prairie Springs Ag Hemp 
Consulting. Well, that wraps it up for today. Thanks for being with us. Tomorrow, we'll take a look at crop and growing conditions, crop ratings, market reaction, and more coming up tomorrow right here on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture from the American Ag Network. We're excited to explore the topics that make a difference to agriculture. The Farm Bill, immigration reform, reducing regulations, trade, new technology, as well as infrastructure and health care. Through the year, Adams on Agriculture will originate on location from several major national meetings and events. Subscribe to the show's podcast at AmericanAgNetwork.com. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture from the American Ag Network. Bad theater seats, cheap Halloween masks, my apartment, all things with obstructed views. Add to these large trucks and buses. 18-wheelers and large buses have big blind spots, and like my apartment, they don't always have the best view. Bus and truck drivers deal with blind spots around the entire vehicle. Always take care not to ride alongside or too close behind them. Our roads, our safety. Learn more at sharetheroadsafely.gov. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure, um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? It's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council.